The New Testament reading comes from Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in the keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue and, and finish our Advent series on the ministry of John the Baptist. We've looked at his ministry in the book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of John, and now we finish by looking at his ministry uh, as presented in the book of, of Matthew. And so before we turn to this passage, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the gospel that it presents. And Lord, I do pray that all that follows would be faithful to your intentions, to this passage, Lord, and that through your spirit you would apply these wonderful truths to our heads and to our hands and to our hearts as the people of God. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this, and in the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, like I said, today we finish up our Advent series, uh, looking at the ministry of, of John the Baptist, and specifically how he prepares the way for the Lord. And, and looking at today's account, at, at the ministry of John in the Gospel of Matthew, I, I want us to do so under three particular headings. We have the need for the promise, we have the faith in the promise, and we have the fulfillment of the promise. And so let's look at the passage under those three headings in turn, and let's start with the need for the promise. A key aspect of John the Baptist's ministry is, is that of, of leveling. He, he brings down the mountains and he raises up the valleys. In fact, John is the one who is spoken of in the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah says, 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And this is a prophecy specifically from Isaiah chapter 40. And if you go on, it immediately continues like this. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. What John does is he levels us. John puts all of us in exactly the same place. Those who are low, he brings up, and those who are high, he brings down. And we'll see how John does this, but before we do that, let's first note that each society and each culture, we all have our own ways of ranking and valuing people. Every group has a rubric. We have a standard that's going to place certain people higher and it's going to place certain people lower. Every group has mountains, right? Those we rank high. And every group is going to have valleys, those we rank low. And we all feel these pressures. We all feel these standards weighing on our shoulders. We all feel the pressure to succeed, to impress others. We all feel the need to climb up the mountain and not to fall into the valley. And in our modern moment, we perhaps, maybe, might feel this more than ever before. We all know this, right? We have a million different movies and articles and books and YouTube videos, all calling us to live the best life we possibly can. We're called to make our lives like the movies. We're called to make every single moment count for as much as it possibly can. We're called to always be improving our careers, our bodies, our romances, our accomplishments, our networks, our status. We are always told, constantly told, that who we are and what we are is not enough. And as, as we approach the new year, and we're bombarded with all the pressures to make often unrealistic New Year's resolutions... We might all be hearing this message quite a bit right now. And what it does is it pushes us into ranking, into putting certain people on mountains and certain people into valleys. It pushes us into competition. We live in a hyper-competitive society, and one particular way this can play out is social media. Starting at a very young age, we, we upload the accomplishments and the happenings of our life for the approval of others. If social media is done in a certain spirit, every aspect of our life can then become a place of ranking and a place of competition. A matter of saying, look at me. Look at how well I'm doing. Look at how much fun I'm having. Look at how many trips I'm taking. Look at all the people I'm meeting. Look at how successful my kids are. Look at my new promotion. And the more likes we get for some particular upload about some particular area of our life, then we feel the higher up the mountain we have gone. But this actually wreaks havoc on our mental health. Sociologist Jean Twenge she writes this in commenting upon social media. She says, have you ever noticed that everyone else on Instagram is on vacation? That's not true, of course, but sometimes it feels that way. She says, online, everyone else's life looks more glamorous than our own. Everyone on Twitter has just gotten promoted. Photos on Instagram look perfect. For many, 
this upward social comparison can be uniquely depressing. And Twingy then goes on to quote uh, the writer Helen Peterson and how this affects uh, that generation known as millennials. But of course, this can be true of, of, of any generation. Peterson writes this, millennials are far less jealous of objects or belongings on social media than the holistic experiences represented there. The sort of thing that prompts people to comment, I want your life. I want your life. And really, I want your life is, is just another way of saying, I want your place on the mountain. And please hear me, I know that social media can be used differently and it can be done without the spirit of competition. But the data is in. And as a society, it pushes us to unprecedented levels of social comparison that end up leaving us much less content and less satisfied with our own lives. It makes us feel like we're losing. It makes us feel like we are in a valley and everybody else is on the mountain. And the data also tells us this is especially true for teenagers and especially for teenage girls. And so if you are a parent of a child this age who uses social media, please do not let social media run its course in your child's life without oversight and instruction and parameters. And so with, with, with all that said, what's the point? How does that relate to this passage? Well, because John comes to level us. We try to convince people that our life is the life they should want. We try to convince them that we are on the mountain. We try to convince them by, that by comparison, they are the ones in the valley. We might not say it in quite these terms, but we want to live our very best life, and we want other people to see us doing it. However, one way that John the Baptist levels us is by actually living the very best life. Or more accurately, John lives the very best life that any mere human has ever lived in our present sinful condition. And that is a huge claim. How do we know this is the case? Well, because Jesus, the one who sees all things, not by way of a social media account, but by way of his divine nature, Jesus tells us that this is so. Jesus makes an astounding statement later in the Gospel of, of Matthew in chapter 11. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Christ is saying that no mere human, and, and importantly, Christ is no mere human, but no mere human has lived a better life than John. And Jesus here is using the true criteria the true greatness of the human life comes not from all the ways that we try to impress other people. The true greatness of the human life comes from fulfilling the law of God, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. This is the standard, God's standard of the human life. This is the standard of the very one who made us, designed us, and upholds us. And Jesus tells us that no mere human has better loved God and neighbor than John. No one has a higher place on the mountain than John himself. And so you might respond, well, doesn't that just put us right back into mountains and, and valleys? All you're saying is that John is, is, is highest on the mountain, but, 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 but surely there's some more room there on that peak. 
And that would be true if Jesus didn't tell us one more thing here. After saying that no one is greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says this, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. One key way that John levels us is by living the very best life before God that any mere human has ever lived in our present condition. And yet, we find out that not even this is enough. Even that doesn't meet the standard of the kingdom of heaven. Even the very least in the kingdom of heaven, even the very least one reconciled to God, is greater than John the Baptist. We are all leveled by John. You will not live a better life than John. But again, even this isn't enough. And so in response, it's, it's only natural to ask, isn't this a kind of leveling that just makes everything futile and pointless? Isn't this a kind of leveling that just makes life one big cruel joke? And this is absolutely the right question to ask. And it takes us to our second point the faith, and the promise. We begin to see the way forward when we look at the categories that John uses when he addresses the crowd. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but, but, but John addresses the crowd as a brood of vipers. In Matthew, he says this specifically of the religious leaders, and as we saw in Luke, John also applies this term to everyone, absolutely everyone in the crowds. And to speak of a brood of vipers is to speak of the offspring of vipers. So we have that term, but we also have another term, another category. John says this to the crowd. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And so what that means is, is John here, he gives us two categories children of the serpent, and children of Abraham. The crowd denies that they are the first, and they claim that they are the second. And these are very, very important categories in Scripture, and in order to understand their full significance, we have to do a little bit of biblical exploration here. And these categories, they take us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobey God, God tells them, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve have sinned, and with sin comes the punishment and the consequence of human death. They were made from the earth, and to the earth, the grave, they shall return. However, amidst this curse of death, we also find the promise of life. We find the promise of the defeat of death and the defeat of the serpent, the devil, who, who tempted humanity into this misery. We find the very promise of the gospel. God declares to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of bruising is a curse of defeat upon the serpent and a promise of hope to Adam and Eve. We find that the offspring of the woman will defeat the offspring of the serpent. And these two categories of, of offspring, they, they, they both speak of one figure, of the Christ and of the serpent, 
But they also speak of two groups, the children of the woman and the children of the serpent. And so John is making a key biblical reference when he calls the crowd a brood of vipers, when he calls them the offspring of vipers. And they certainly would have got this illusion all the way back in Genesis 3. But we find more in Genesis 3. How is it that Adam and Eve respond to the promise of God? They believe it. They put their faith in God's promise. We cannot forget that Adam names Eve, not before this, but after God's cursing and his blessing. It is after the fall and after the promise of God that we read this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In this world of human death, we see that the man and the woman believe that God will still bring life, specifically through the offspring of the woman. And how do we know that they believe this? Because amidst this world of death, Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. They believe that God will bring life from death. They trust in God's promise. This is the very first instance of salvation in all of Scripture. And this, this trust in God's promise will continue to be the one and only way that people are saved. This is just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The only difference is whether people are looking forward to the fulfillment of that promise, as in the Old Testament, or if they're looking backward upon that fulfillment, as in the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament, they have the very same pattern, the very same logic of salvation, faith in God's promise. And this is especially important to remember, as many of you, maybe even tomorrow, will begin Bible reading plans that will take you through Scripture in a year. Those are are great. Those are fantastic. And through it all, always remember that through the whole Bible, The people of God are saved by faith in God's promise. There's a different administration of this promise. In the Old Testament, for instance, we have the sacrificial system, but it's the very same promise. The promise that is communicated through Old Testament sacrifices and through circumcision is the very same promise that's communicated through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. And that's one reason why we do the Lord's Supper every week here. The very same promise that we proclaim and preach each week is the very same promise that we taste each week in the bread and the wine. To savor the bread and the wine is to savor the promise of God as the people of God. And as we will see, what is communicated is the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. We'll get to that in our third point. And so what that means and what we should expect is that we see the very same pattern of salvation with Abraham that we see with Adam and Eve. Again, the key defense of the crowds that come to John is that they are children of Abraham. They are the offspring of the woman in Abraham. And what is it that the Bible tells us about Abraham? It tells us that faith in God's promise was the keystone of Abraham's life. In Genesis 15, God declares his promise to be Abraham's God and to establish a people for himself from the children of Abraham and Sarah, a people from whom this promised serpent crusher would come. 
And after God promises this to Abraham, we read this. Abraham believes and trusts. Oh, sorry, we read this. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes and he trusts in the promise of God and he receives the salvation of the Lord. As it was with Adam and Eve, so it is with Abraham. But what then does it mean to be a child of Abraham? That category that the crowd uses in their defense against John. Well, the Apostle Paul, he tells us this in Galatians 3. He writes, Know then that it is those who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We find a number of interesting things here. First, we find that those who share faith in Abraham's promise, the promise of God, they are the ones who are children of Abraham. It's by faith in God's promise that we become the people of God, that we become the children of Abraham. But Paul also says something very surprising, even startling here. Paul tells us that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And we have to ask, what on earth does that mean? Well, last week, if you remember, we talked about gospel, and, and gospel means good news. Gospel is not advice or commands or instruction. No, gospel is news about something that is done. In this case, it is the good news about what God has done for his people. And how do we see this in the life of Abraham? In Genesis 15, right after Abraham is justified for his belief in God's promise, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And as per the cultural conventions of covenant making, Abraham takes animals and he cuts them in half. The idea is that both people, both parties were supposed to walk through the animals. And that was a way of saying that if I break my word to you, if I break my pledge or promise to you, then may I end up like these animals. However, what we see in Genesis 15 is that only God and not Abraham passes between these severed animals. This is a huge breach of cultural convention. But through it, God is communicating this. Abraham, if I break my promise to you, may I end up like these animals. And of course, this won't happen, right? There's nothing more solid, more true, more trustworthy than the word of the Lord. However, God is also saying this. Abraham, if you break your word to me, may I still be the one who ends up like these animals? And of course, Abraham will break his pledge. Abraham cannot keep his commitment to God perfectly. That's the whole reason Abraham needs a savior. It's the whole reason for the promise of God. It's the whole reason of the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. This is the gospel. Abraham, I, your God, will fulfill your covenant requirements for you. And Abraham, me, your God, 
I will take the punishment you deserve being slaughtered like these animals for your not keeping these covenant requirements. Abraham, I will fulfill all of the requirements for you, both the positive and the negative. But Abraham, you must have faith in this. You must trust this promise. You must trust this good news. You must trust this gospel. Abraham, you and your children, the children of Abraham, will become my people, will be reconciled to me by trusting this promise, trusting this gospel. John the Baptist knew this. That's why he does his work of leveling. Even John's best life in our present condition is not enough. Even John's very impressive obedience isn't enough to be the very least in the kingdom of heaven. Not even John can keep the covenant requirements. Not even John can be saved apart from faith in God's promise. And it makes sense that trusting in God's promise would be a keystone of John's ministry. Think about John's father, Zechariah. When the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, promising him the birth of his son John, Zechariah doesn't believe the promise. He and his wife Elizabeth have long wanted a child, but after many years of struggling with infertility, Zechariah has given up hope. And so Zechariah doubts the words of the angel. And he is punished for this by not being able to speak until John is born. However, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she does believe the words of Gabriel concerning a much, much more miraculous happening. She believes God's promise of the virgin birth. And what is it that Elizabeth, John's mother, tells her relative Mary as they are both pregnant together because of the wonderful work of God? Elizabeth says this, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And friends, these words are true of any child of Abraham, of each and every person who has placed their faith in the promise of the Lord. Blessed are you, you who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to you from the Lord. And this truth it takes us to our third and our final point, the fulfillment of the promise. How is it that all of this stuff fits together? Again, John levels us. We will not live a better life than John. And we are all in the same exact place before the Lord. There are no high mountains. There are no low valleys. None of us, not even John, by his own efforts, is worthy to be even the least in the kingdom of heaven. This is the first part of John's ministry, but John's ministry doesn't stop there. He tells us that salvation, being reconciled to and communing with God, is a matter of becoming a child of Abraham. John does not dispute the crowd's claim that the category children of Abraham is to be contrasted with brood of vipers. John actually affirms this. However, what he attacks is what they think makes someone into a child of Abraham. You have the right category, but you're seeking it in the wrong way. 
The crowds went to look at something about themselves that qualifies them to be children of Abraham. In their case, they looked to their physical descent and lineage. In our case, we might point to something else. We might, for instance, point to how high we are on the mountain according to our cultural standards and our cultural rankings. But if not even John is a child of Abraham because of his own physical descent and his own incomparably great life, then our own identity and accomplishments will not work either. This casts light on another key aspect of John's ministry. John declares, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John calls us to repentance, and this makes perfect sense. To repent is to turn away from one thing and to turn to another. To repent in a biblical sense is to turn away from all of the ways that we attempt to put ourselves on the mountain and to push others into the valley. It's to turn away from all those ways that we seek to justify ourselves in our existence. It's to turn away from all of those never-ending efforts to try to make other people think, I want your life. It's to turn away from the never-ending efforts of always moving up the ladder and getting more prestige or money or resources or attractiveness or success or admiration or a million other things. It's to turn away from all of those reasons that we can never rest and to be content with the good gifts that God has given to us. And if this is what we turn away from, what is it that we turn to? We turn to the promise of God. We turn to the very gospel that was preached to Adam and Eve, the promise of the child who would crush the head of the serpent. We turn to the very gospel that was preached to Abraham, the good news of God taking the covenant curses, being slaughtered like those animals, so Abraham could enjoy the covenant blessings of communion with God. This promise... This promise is the promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. John levels us. We are all in the same desperate place before God. And this is how John prepares the way of the Lord. John reminds us that salvation is becoming a child of Abraham, of sharing Abraham's faith in God's promise and so John calls us to repent, to turn away from ourselves and turn to the great and gracious promise of the Lord fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And how is it that Christ fulfills this? How is it that it was Christ Jesus himself who was communicated through this Old Testament promise? Well, Christ is the one who crushes the head of the serpent, the devil. And Christ is the one who suffers the covenant curses that God promised to Abraham that God himself would suffer. This is the good news promised to Abraham. Abraham, I, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, will suffer the covenant curses that you alone deserve so that you might enjoy the covenant blessings that I alone have earned with my perfect human life that greatly surpasses even the life of John the Baptist. Repent, Abraham. Turn away from yourself and turn to this promise. 
This is the faith that John calls all of us to share with Abraham. And what do these truths mean for our lives? Many things. But let me close by focusing on two things. Christians are to be a people who are repentant and a people who are joyful. First, we are called to be a repentant people. Do we really believe that faith alone in Christ Jesus, the promise fulfilled, reconciles us to God? Realize that you will never strive harder than John the Baptist. By your own efforts, you will not be as righteous as John. Jesus tells us so. But here's the thing. John's righteousness wasn't enough anyways. If it were, there would be no need for Christ in his first coming, his first advent. If it were, then John would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But by his own righteousness, John is not even least in the kingdom of heaven. The least one with the righteousness of Christ is immeasurably greater than John standing in his own righteousness. Here's the key truth. Christians have received the very righteousness of Christ by placing their faith in Christ. Do you, do you really believe that? Do you really rest in that? Do you look at Christ rather than your own striving as the basis of your salvation and your communion with the Lord? And this truth is important for many reasons, but one is because it brings us to the privilege of repentance. Again, John describes the Christian life as one of bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. If your faith is true faith, you will lead a life characterized by repentance. A true faith will have this effect. Your salvation does not rest on what you've done, and so you can admit when you've done wrong. But if you cannot admit that, if you cannot confess your sin, then you are not relying on Christ. If you cannot admit when you're wrong, in fact, if, if, if you cannot laugh at yourself, then you are relying on yourself rather than Christ. You are trying to become a child of Abraham by your own efforts. Secondly, Christians should be a joyful people. And please hear me, I, I don't mean to dismiss, dismiss struggles with mental health here. And it's also the case that Christians bear a sorrow that goes very deep. We are called to see the sorrows of this world more clearly than others. And we know how deeply these depart from God's good design. However, coupled with this depth of sorrow, Christians should have a special height of joy. Joy, in fact, is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. True faith in Christ will produce joy, a deep joy that stands beyond the circumstances of life. In an age that is obsessed with not missing out on any experience or success or pleasure, Christians know that they will miss out on nothing. 
Because of Christ, Christians know that one day their every sorrow will be consoled, their every tear dried, their every pain and sickness healed, their every fear vanquished, their every true and good love consummated, their every true and good desire fulfilled. As I've heard it said, for the Christian, the best is always yet to come. If this doesn't bring us joy, if this doesn't move our affections, if this doesn't make our hearts beat faster, then we don't get it. True faith will produce a deep joy in the Lord. Christians should be known for many things, and one of those things is joy. Ask yourself, would people consider you a joyful person? Not a circumstantially happy person, but a deeply joyful person. And one figure who helps make many of these things concrete is, is C.S. Lewis. Consider his example. Lewis was a great intellect and, and scholar, but throughout his career at, at Oxford, he was continually denied a chair. And this was despite his serious academic work in Renaissance and medieval literature. And so Lewis remained a tutor for his whole time there, although he was eventually offered a, a chair position at Cambridge that he did take near the end of his life. Think about what Lewis wore. Most of his suits were from his father, and, and not only did they not quite fit right, but by that time they were pretty shabby. Lewis felt no need to impress others with his wardrobe and with his style. Lewis studied and he taught because he cared deeply for learning and for his students, not to climb up the ladder, not to climb higher on the mountain. And this is great. We have a whole book of letters that Lewis wrote specifically to children. Lewis believed it no insult, but a great privilege to use his intellect to answer the questions of kids. Write letter recipients with very little, if any, social capital. And what characterized Lewis's life? A deep and enduring and serious joy. He famously wrote, joy is the serious business of heaven. As Lewis shows us, the Christian life is free from all of the ways that our culture tries to put people on mountains and others on valleys. Lewis is really free from the rat race. In a frenetic age of constant competition, do we find that kind of life attractive and compelling? Friends, we have received the very approval and delight of God because of the work of Christ. And so who cares if we have less titles after our name than we had hoped for? Who cares if others aren't impressed by our resume when the very God of the universe delights in us and we in him? We become children of God and so we are free to sidestep these games of social comparison and instead, for instance, invest in the children in our midst. We have the restored and perfected creation to look forward to where we will commune perfectly with God and neighbor. And so, yes, we count repentance a present privilege and joy a present necessity. And because of all that, let the words of John's mother to Mary be true of us. Blessed are you 
who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to you from the Lord. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise it presents us with. May we rest more fully in it. Thank you, Lord. Give us glad, grateful hearts of faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.